0: All right, but there's a, uh, there's a communication lesson in there. There's a negotiation lesson. There's, uh, there's a sales lesson in there, buried in that. What, what do you think it is? I'm sorry? What do you think the lesson is? What, do you, what is it? See, the, the thing that I love about hostage negotiation, what we come to learn is, when we invented this back in the 1970s, we didn't know it was all neuroscience-based. You know, we are psychologists. Psychologists did a great job before we could actually learn inside, look inside the brain and see how it works. Everything we did in hostage negotiations backed up by neuroscience and communication. The neuroscience, negotiation, communication lesson here is you're up to 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. 31%. That's no small jump. The, the mood that we have directly correlates to how efficiently your brain functions for hostage negotiators, we would calm people down. We'd use a thing called the late-night FM DJ (laughs) voice, And people would calm down. We didn't know why it worked, we just knew it worked. It actually turned their brain down. 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. What's the lesson here for you? Now, as a hostage negotiator, you know, do I show up at a bank going like, hey, I'm from Iowa. I just flew in. Boy, my arm's tired. I'm not telling jokes. You know, I didn't, I didn't go on Anderson Cooper telling a joke, but I did use humor, humor appropriate to the context. When you're using humor, you're up to 31% smarter. Think about that. You're also causing your counterpart to be up to 31% smarter, putting them in a mood. One of our, one of our terms for negotiation is flexibility. Never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. Cool. All right. So I, that, that sounds cool. I'll do that. How do I get something better to happen? Appropriate humor in the moment. I don't tell that joke. Jeffrey Tubin does not give me the best commercial my company ever had. The Black Swan Group. That's the baddest ass name I ever heard. What is that? He does that spontaneously. I kick. I cause him to have the oppor- the idea in his head. He doesn't know it came from me because I made him feel better. He gives me something enormously valuable, receiving nothing in return. But it's contextual to the moment. Context is always important. Friend of mine was telling me he's in a negotiation he works for Raytheon. What is Raytheon? Raytheon is the government's arms dealer, right? So weapons on behalf of the U.S. government, arms dealer around the world. They're selling weapons to Korea. South Korea, they got a problem. The relationship is breaking down. They send my friend to South Korea to, to negotiate with these guys. The South Koreans are so mad at these guys, they put them in a room in the middle of this, in the, in the middle of this building, a room that's got no windows. <laughs> you know, I'm surprised they didn't waterboard them when they came in. But they got them in a room with no windows because they're trying to make it unpleasant for them. And it's an unpleasant negotiation. While they're in the middle of this negotiation, the lights go out. So if you're in a room with no windows, you're in pitch black. The lights go completely out, they're sitting there. He says, after a couple minutes sitting in the the pitch black, he says, whose hand is that on my leg? (laughs) And the lights come back on, and they all laugh. And then they make the deal. Now, of course, they felt better about each other, but they simultaneously felt better about each other and got smarter in the moment. This is crazy. Here's how crazy this is, and here's how you can begin to override your system and hack your system, because two out of three of you in this room are not normally in a positive frame of mind. There's a number of things we know about the types of human beings that survived on a planet, and regardless of gender or ethnicity, we break down pretty much into three types, fight, flight, and make friends. Now the make friends type from the caveman days is normally in a pretty good mood. The fight, flight guys, and I'm a fight guy, You know, we're not running around in a positive frame of mind on a regular basis, so we're actually not tapping into our full mental capacity. How can you hack that if you're in one of those types, if you're like me? They did a psychological experiment where they asked people to hold a pencil in in their mouth without letting their lips touch it. What are you doing? You're smiling, right? Can we fool ourselves if we know in a positive frame of mind what happens if you don't know you're in a positive frame of mind? Is there a hardware connection between the facial muscles, the nerves, and the brain? They did the experiment. Their brain picked up anyway. They didn't know they were smiling. You force a smile onto your face. If I look at you and I smile, I hit your mirror neurons. It's an involuntary reaction. I could pick anybody out in this room. If I smile at you, even if you frown back at me, you're going to be fighting the smile in your face on your, uh, fighting the smile in your brain with your frown. But that still means I'm still hitting your mirror neurons. You can't stop it. If you can hear, I can hit your mirror neurons. If you can see, I can hit your mirror neurons. It's an involuntary response. Here's another crazy piece of information along these lines that I found out recently. They gave Botox to women who were depressed. This, now this is, the, the, our sample group happens to be women, do not be, um, misled by the fact that they're women because they're, this works because they're human beings, not because they're women. You gotta be careful the kind of data you get. If you misinterpret data, then you say things like, playing basketball makes you tall. <laughs> you gotta understand how you interpret your data. So sample size is women, this works because they're human beings, not because they're women. They're depressed, they give them Botox so they can't frown anymore. The mood instantly elevates. Instantly, because they override the system. If you're a natural frowner, you're hurting yourself. Bad news about that experiment is with Botox, they also have trouble smiling. So they can't elevate the rest of the way up there. It's so a neuroscience rule make yourself smile. You'll hack your system, you'll communicate better, you will get more. You will get surprises in your deals, this unexpected stuff. You get, you get the Jeffrey Toobin, give you something enormously valuable. You didn't give him anything in return. So, let me see if I can tell you a little bit more about myself. I was the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator. What did that mean? What that meant was any American got kidnapped anywhere in the world, it was my job to come up with a negotiation strategy that got you out, set the stage for us to follow on and get the bad guys afterwards. Effectively, the way that we ran the program was the same reason you give a bank teller bait money. Bank robber comes in, you don't want the bank teller to get killed. Money's great evidence. You actually want the bank robber to leave with some money. If he gets all the way back to his hideout, he divides up the money, then you get the people that work with him. It's a pretty good system. So that's what I did. And I worked kidnappings all over the world. So if an American got grabbed someplace, and let's make a distinction. This is not Americans getting arrested by a government in North Korea. That's an illegal detention. That wasn't my thing. What I did was kidnappers, criminals, terrorists. That was my job. So you might ask yourself all right, so how busy is the lead international kidnapping negotiator? Well, it's a big world, and there are a lot of Americans doing really stupid things. <laughs> so you call on a regular basis. But this instance, in particular in Haiti, Haiti's a little bit different ballgame. A lot of dual nationals getting grabbed in Haiti. Bad guys don't know they're taking Americans. They're dual nationals. Now, this is happening on a regular basis because, do you guys know this, and this is one of the reasons why I'm an unabashed patriot, fan of the United States. We're not perfect. We got our shortcomings. I I think we're a phenomenal place. How many countries in the world, if you're born there, are you a citizen? Do you know? I grew up in Iowa. I know the accent doesn't sound like I grew up in Iowa, but I grew up in Iowa. I grew up there and I thought, I was born here, I'm entitled to citizenship. It's the way the world, it's, it's the way things should be. No, it's not. It's argued that there are only two developed nations on the entire planet that have birthright by, citizen, by uh, citizenship by birth. I believe the Latin term is just, just soli, which is right of the soil. Those of you who can speak Latin, forgive me for my butchering of the pronunciation. Two countries in the entire world, two developed nations, US and Canada, not one country in Europe. You're born in England, you get citizenship? No. You're born in Australia, you get citizenship? No. They'd laugh at you, they'd think that's hysterical. United States, right of birth. As it turns out, it's largely a creature, uh, a, a thought, an idea of the Americas. Most of the countries in North and South America, for whatever reason, how these cultures came to be here, we believe in uh, citizenship by birthright. What does this have to do with Haiti? Haitian moms know the very best gift they could possibly give to their child on their child's literal first birthday is a gift of American citizenship and privileges and opportunities that brings. So Haitian moms, one way or another, legal, illegal, legal or illegal, are finding a way into uh, American soil so the child can be born an American citizen. That's, how, that's why the bad guys don't know they're grabbing Americans. They think they're grabbing Haiti, uh, Haitians. Now, at the time, also, recognition, kidnapping is a business. I, I'm, I'm the most practiced negotiator on international commodities of any other hostage negotiator. Kidnapping is a business is commodity business. To us, it's a horrible event. To the kidnappers, it's a job. It's what they do. It's commodities business. Commodity happens to be human beings. They don't care. It's what they do. They got a division of labor. They got people that acquire the commodity. They got people that transport the commodity. They got people that house the commodity. They got people that release the commodity. They got people that handle the transactions for the commodity. They got a boss that sits back and watches everybody and criticizes what they do. Just like everybody else has a boss that criticizes what you did. You guys, you guys saw the movie Man on Fire with Denzel Washington, right? Who do you negotiate with in that movie? The Voice. The Voice's job was to negotiate. It's a business. Haitian kidnapping business at the time, the bad guys got a great business model. It's actually, I was impressed with, with what they'd come to as a business model. Carjack a car with more than one person in it. Let one person go, keep the other person in the car. You've immediately handled your notifications. You don't have to worry about marketing, if you will. (laughs) You've pre-qualified your customer. If they got a car, they got money for a ransom. In Haiti, you got a car, you got some dough. You got money for a car and gas, you can pay a ransom. You're pre-qualified. And what happens if you grab the one person in a family that nobody likes? You got a car. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sharp, right? Very sharp business model. So I get a call one day. 12-year-old boy in Haiti's been grabbed. Tovio boy is an American citizen, his father is not. His father knows that his son is an American citizen and because of that he's supposed to get help from the U.S. government. Goes to the United States government, says, my son's a citizen, he's been kidnapped. And the State Department says, the FBI's gonna be there to help you. Put my next slide, or put my slides back up please. I'm not sure what went through his mind when he heard that, but I'm sure that probably about 15 minutes later, he expected to hear a and these guys would be there at his door. Maybe they'd have FBI hats on. But instead, 15 minutes later, he gets a call from some guy in Washington, D.C., named Chris Voss, and he literally says to me on the phone, you're in Washington, D.C., how you gonna help me. Now, how much time have I got before this guy hangs out the phone? Seconds, right? How much time do I got? You or me, what do you say? How long do you have to make a first impression? Do you know? Seven seconds same amount of time as me, when you're making a first impression, you think people aren't saying to themselves, how you going to help me? You think they're not saying that to themselves? In that seven seconds, what do you have to establish? In that seven seconds, what did I have to establish? Trust. What else? Confidence. Not confidence, close competency. Not the same thing. You got the same amount of time as me. You got to establish the exact same things I had to establish. You got somebody saying to you, about you, in their head, the same thing that that father said to me on the phone. How are you going to help me? It's the same thing. What do you say? You're me, what do you say? Now, the reason why I knew what to say to this father is because I've done it wrong in the past. First time I showed up in the Philippines on a case that we're gonna talk about in a few minutes, I did it wrong. They walked me into a room, the entire heads of the government are there. Because as an American, it's been grabbed. I've been invited in by the ambassador. The ambassador's personally, signed off on me coming in, the head of our office in Manila's brought me in. Everybody other than the president of the Philippines is in the room. The only reason the president is not there is his, his personal advisor is. Secretary of Defense is there, head of the police, everybody is there. And basically, in sum and substance, what they say, how are you gonna help us? I make the mistake of laying out my resume. FBI agent, hostage negotiator, we're terrorism won the Attorney General's Award for Excellence in Investigation, the FBI Agents Association Award for Distinguished and Exemplary Service. Been on a terrorist task force in New York City for 14 years. Not only have I been trained by the FBI in Scotland Yard, I write the book, I wrote the book that we train from now. I will tell you, they were suitably unimpressed. (laughs) They may as well have yawned right in my face. I remember walking out of that meeting, the head of our office goes, those guys are disrespectful, they challenge your credentials. I'm from Iowa, I go like, how cool was that? When did I ever get to argue with the Secretary of Defense of an entire country? <laughs> why is that? Why, why is me, you laying out, me laying out my resume, you laying out your resume? Stupid. It's all about you. Number one, it's all about me, but number two, your resume correlates <laughs> loosely with whether or not you know what you're doing. If your resume correlated accurately with what you did, you guys would never make a bad hire, would you? What I say to that father, here's what I said. All right, so Haitian kidnappers are not killing kidnap victims these days. I realize it's really stupid because they kill each other at the drop of a hat, but they're not killing kidnap victims. But today is Thursday, and Haitian kidnappers love to party on Saturday night. So if you say the things that I want you to say, when I want you to say them, we'll have your son out late Friday, early Saturday morning. He said, tell me what you want me to do. And we had his son out Saturday morning. So let's break down a little bit what I said or what I didn't say. First of all, which took more time? Me laying out my resume or me laying out what he was faced with? It took less time for me to lay out what he was faced with, didn't it? I will tell you also in the course of getting his son out, he never asked me how long I'd been an FBI agent. He never asked me how long I'd been a negotiator. He never asked me how many countries i'd negotiated in he never asked me how many cases in haiti i'd negotiated in. he never even asked me how many times i've been to haiti you know how many times i've been to haiti never i've never been to haiti did i speak french did i speak creole did he ask me those questions and you may have asked yourself already you know there's basically 168 countries in this world a lot of languages how many languages does chris Ball speak if he negotiated all over the world And by now, you realize the answer to that is barely one. (laughs) He didn't ask me any of those questions. I told him what he was facing because when someone says, how are you going to help me, their first question is, okay, so you've been doing this for a long time. Do you see what I see? Do you know what I'm looking at? I laid it out for him and I offered him the slightest bit of insight. And they say to themselves, wow, if you see clearly what's in front of me, there's a really good chance you know what you're doing. Do I have to explain this to you? Do I have to explain to you my challenges? You lay it out. One of two things happen. They say to you, that's right. Or they say, no, that's not it. This is it. What happens when they say that's not it? This is it. You're in dialogue. You're in collaboration instantly. You're trying to get to dialogue and collaboration instantly, aren't you? And many people don't realize that when somebody corrects you, that means you're in collaboration, you're in dialogue, and you're, you're on your way with that. Here's a couple of other things I did not do, and one of them is probably the two, the two worst habits you have. Did I try to get him to say yes? You guys are hardwired to hear yes. You guys are desperate for it. You guys, you guys got an addiction to yes. You didn't know it was going to be that kind of a meeting, did you? Hi. Hi, Chris. It's so bad. Here's how bad it is, and getting you out of that. You think getting people to say yes, the yes momentum, the yesable proposition, get them to say yes to a lot of little things, and, you get, and they say yes to the big thing, you're addicted to that. And getting out of that is gonna be one of the most difficult things you could do. Not complicated, but here's how difficult it's gonna be. Everybody make a fist with either hand. Right thumb up. Left forefinger out. Now switch. That hurt, didn't it? Switch back. Some of you are going like, I got your left forefinger (laughs) out. I saw him right here. You like, CBC's this. (laughs) Was that complicated? What I asked you to do? Do you need to be? Do you need to be Elon Musk to know what I was trying to get you to do? No, but it was awkward and it was difficult. I know there's somebody in the back room right now going like, ah, ah. Here's the cool thing about that brain science: the difficulty that you felt trying to get that done is actually the creation of a new neural pathway. That's ah, a cool idea. The neuroscience rules are the, path, the the synapses that fire together, wire together. Now your yes habit is hardwired. That road is built and you're used to screaming down that road in your thought processes. Getting out of it is going to take some repetitions. How many? 63. John Foley, Blue Angel pilot, I heard him give a speech probably about two years ago. He talked about wiring grooves into their brain, which is the same thing as the neural pathways and new habits that I'm talking about. And they, you know, if they don't wire a groove into their brain, these guys crash into each other in the air and people start to die instantly. And he said they did some research on it, I said it took about 63 to 65 repetitions to put a new habit in the brain. at the very beginning, it's as hard as that was, and you quit and you give up and you, because you think it's going to be that hard the whole time. You're like, I'm not doing this anymore. It hurts my head, but you don't know how close you actually are to breaking through a new habit. Everybody knows what the, the bell curve looks like. It, it's very steep, and then it peaks, and then you take off <laughs> on the other end. Building, you're building a new habit. Some of the new habits I'm going to share with you today at the beginning, you just see how steep this thing is initially, and you're like, you know, this is too hard. I'm not doing this anymore, but i got to get you out of the yes habit. i got to get you out of that. It's, that is the worst thing you could possibly do. I, I don't even bother with the word yes, and when we were, when we were working on the book, uh, one of the guys that I was working with, he said, hey, how'd you, how'd you get the, as a hostage negotiator, how'd you get kidnappers to say yes? Only question I can remember being thoroughly stumped by, because I'd never really thought about it that hard. At that time, and I said, no, we never did. It's a useless word. So we didn't even bother with it. So some of you are sitting there, sitting there thinking right now, like, okay, fine. Now what do you want me to do? Because that's all I do. And you know what? I close deals that way, too. You can't tell me that I don't close deals getting people to say yes. Now I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm just saying your batting average isn't anywhere close to what it should be. You're batting 125 when you should be batting 350 for you baseball players. Yeah, stick to 125. You want to stay there? Because this is what it looks like, and this is why it fails. Would you like to have a more efficient system? Would you like to have more customers? Would you like to have more free time? Buy my product. Now this is, maybe there was a point in time when this was a good idea, maybe. But the swamp land timeshare salesman, the coupon book, the $50,000 coupon book salesman has already battered them so hard that they're battered by yes. You guys know anecdotally what happens if you come across a battered child and you try to hug them? They still flinch and jump back from you. But wait a minute, I was trying to give them a hug. I'm a good guy. I meant well. I wasn't trying to trap them. I was trying to have integrity. It doesn't matter. They're battered. Everybody's battered by, yes, you've you got to stop this. you got to stop it. Okay, fine, you convinced me, now what? You know who this is? Jack Welch.
1: Jack,
0: one of the most famous CEOs, former CEO of GE, author of a number of books. Jack, winning the real life MBA. Jack Welch came to Los Angeles a couple years ago. He and his wife Susie, the, the latest book, The Real Life MBA, I'm gonna go to the book signing, I'm gonna ask Jack to come speak at the class I'm, I'm teaching at that time at the USC Marshall School of Business in the MBA program. Negotiation. I want Jack to come speak to my negotiation class. How many people try to get Jack Welch to say yes to something that day? Everybody. How many people in a book signing are try, gonna try to get Jack Welch to say yes to something? they come up to him and say, hey Jack, you wanna come to the house? Wife makes a great meatloaf. <laughs> How many people? Everybody. You're me, what do you say? How much time have I got? Maybe not seven seconds, even less than that because at a book signing, what happens? A guy like Jack Welch, you come in, when, when you're about five, six, seven people from Jack, somebody comes up to you and says, what's your name? They write your name down on a piece of paper so Jack can write your name on the book, they say, but in reality, it's so you don't talk to him. He doesn't say, half say to you, what's your name? He says, Chris, whew, good luck, keep going. Problem one, there's 300 people online. If I try to stop and talk to Jack Welch for even 20 seconds, we're now there for six hours, right? Problem two, Jack Welch's a legitimate celebrity. They don't know who I am. They, they, they haven't put me through a metal detector. They don't know I, I don't have a gun. As a matter of fact, I have a gun. But they don't know that I'm an FBI agent. They haven't got any ID for me. I could come up, I'm gonna get within arm's length of Jack Welch, I could do what I want. Jane Fonda was at a book signing a number of years ago. A Vietnam vet got within arm's length of her and spit right in her face. Action is quicker than reaction. I'm gonna be arm's length from Jack Welch. He's got security people there that are worried about his safety. They know they can't stop me from doing whatever I wanna do. I could walk up to Jack Welch, I could take his face in my hands and kiss him right on the lips if I wanted to. He got a disgusted look on his face from that, isn't he? <laughs> But they don't know what I'm gonna do. So everybody's more than jumpy. I walk up to Jack Welch and this is what I say. Is it a ridiculous idea for you to come and speak at the negotiation course that I teach at USC. And he looks up and to the left, he gets this really intense scowl on his face and he just freezes. He doesn't move. And I think, I just killed Jack Welch. Because <laughs> he's old, right? I figured he got mad. <laughs> and he had a stroke and he's gonna die because he's so angry. He's gonna <laughs> Fall right in front of me. And then they're gonna tackle me, they're gonna blame me, they're gonna drag me on cuffs. And I'll say, But I'm an FBI agent. And well you killed Jack Welch, doesn't matter. <laughs> so initially, when he doesn't die, I'm relieved. But he still doesn't move. And I'm thinking now he's gonna start going, security, security, because he looks furious. Finally he looks at me and he says, This is my personal assistant's name. This is a special Twitter account we have set up to communicate with her. I will call her, tell her who you are and what you want. I think we're gonna be in Los Angeles in the fall. If we are, we'll come in and speak to your course. Because it triggered a no. I triggered a calibrated no, a calculated no. I changed the yes question to a no. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, a calibrated no is worth five yeses. Think about think about what he thought through and the steps that he thought through before he answered me. Because all the rest of that stuff I would have had if he'd have said yes. I'd have said, who do I get in touch with? How do I coordinate with them? How do I communicate with them? Will you call them and brief them? We're talking about the fall. Where are you going to be in the fall? Think of how many questions he went ahead and answered for me. It's insane. We do this on a regular basis. I don't bother with yes. We did a training in New York just about uh, earlier this month. It's still May, right? We did about 2 weeks ago. Um, very intense intensive master class. I happened to run across Robert Herjavec from Shark Tank in New York or in LA just a couple weeks ago. By the way, a wonderful guy. I mean, a wonderful, gracious, charming, impressive guy. I would work with him. I would work for him. He was telling me about how he develops his people. Phenomenal guy. I offer him a free ticket. He's gracious enough to say, how many can we buy? And so we're going back and forth on how many he could buy, and I'm trying to get a commitment out of him, and the event is selling, Like, it is, the door is slamming shut. And I realize that if I don't get a, a nearly instantaneous commitment from him, because we're charging people a lot of money for these tickets, we're charging people just short of $2,000 per head to be there, and, every, you know, uh, we got people buying them. I can't keep this window open for him. I don't care if he is a billionaire. We got people who want these tickets. So at five o'clock on a Friday, I have to get a commitment from him now. We're in LA, five o'clock on a Friday, it's 8 p.m. here in New York. The other problem is, business opens in New York three hours earlier than it does in Los Angeles. If I haven't got him committed before the start of the next business day, he's out. I sent him an email that says, are you against making a commitment for these tickets now? Are you against paying for them before the start of business tomorrow? And I get an email back instantly, says no, we're gonna take three in total. We'll pay for them before, the, before business starts tomorrow. Less than 20 minutes later, I'm getting emails from his assistant to pay. Now what would you have done normally? You know, how many would you like? Would you please commit now? Can you pay before the close of business tomorrow would be the normal thing? But it's gonna to be too late. But I, you help people think by switching out of yes and into no. I don't bother with yes. We don't bother with yes. I could, I, could go, I could belabor it at length. Yes is commitment, commitment creates anxiety. No is protection. Protection makes people feel safe and secure and helps them think. Anxiety interferes with people's thought processes. Every time you try to get somebody to say yes to something, you're creating anxiety because they say to themselves, what have I let myself in for? What's the catch? What's the hook? Where's this going? What are you trying to do to me? These are anxiety-creating instances which interfere with their ability to make decisions. It's not me telling you this. This is neuroscience. Anxiety slows the brain. Don't take my word for it. Okay, fine. So what if no is not enough? And this, is, this, is, this, is what, this is really what sold the book to the publisher. They'd never seen anything like this before. It's uh, in our utter disdain for yes. Because what's the most famous negotiating book in the world anyway, right? Everybody knows getting to yes, right? Yes is supposed to be what you want to get people to say. Yes is not what you want people to say. This is what you want them to say after the no. Now, that's kind of disappointing, right? Like, that's not special. That doesn't make me feel good, the way yes makes me feel good. I love yes. I got a bad addiction to yes. I'm happy when I hear you. That's right. It's it's not what it is to you when it comes out of their mouth. It's what it is to them. That's right is what people say when they think that what they've just heard is the total and complete truth. There's two simultaneous things that happen. It triggers a subtle epiphany in people's brains. There's a chemical change with epiphany. They feel better. They feel smarter. They feel clarity. Stephen Covey's advice from way back when, seek first to understand, then be understood. And so we thought, okay, all we got to do is say to somebody, I understand, and then you you get to talk, right? Because they're ready to hear you. No. It's the changes show understanding first trigger a that's right, then and only then are they ready to hear you. What, whatever your political, whatever political side of the aisle you're on, I'll give you an example to prove it to you. Last presidential election, the two candidates were on TV engaged in a debate when whichever candidate you loved, when you decided to vote for them, they said something in the debate you thoroughly believed in. You didn't look at the TV and say, you're right. You looked at the TV and you went, that's right. That's what people say when they're all in. They say, that's right. Also, I had somebody stop me and say, I think it's when the person is telling you they feel empathy from you. Empathy is this powerful mystical tool. Empathy is not sympathy. Empathy is not sympathy. I don't know how many times I could say that. Empathy is not sympathy. And it triggers a moment when they feel bonded to you. And that's where you build trust-based influence. You know who the greatest practitioners of empathy are on the planet? Do you guys know? Social, very close. Social pass. <laughs> Why do you think it's the preferred communication approach of social pass? Because they like you. Because it works. Because they like to work hard? Because sociopaths have a great work ethic? Yeah, I want to hire a sociopath They work really hard. (laughs) It's efficient. It sticks. It lasts. It's the most durable form of influence there is. Sociopaths are lazy. They want to wind you up once and then keep you wound up with a minimal amount of effort. All right, fine. So they like it. Does it work on them? I love this question. Does empathy work on sociopaths? We think. Here's a sociopath. Can I have a slide back, please. Guy up on the right. Guy at the bottom is an American overseas doing stupid stuff. He gets grabbed by this guy. Guy in a sunglasses and a black bandana. Make no mistake. is a murdering, raping straight out of the movies bad to the bones, sociopath. He's a killer, he's got the blood on his hands, literally, of no shortage of people that he has physically and personally cut their heads off. These guys got a method of chopping heads off that they, uh, was shown to me and explained to me they're actually kind of proud of, they're so effective at it. It's like a contest. How, how efficiently can you chop a head off of a human being? This guy's done it a bunch of times, and a rapist. And he finds a woman that he likes, he rapes her enough, she becomes pregnant. Him and his buddies shove her down a hill so she miscarriages so they can keep her. These are not nice guys. These are the definitions of sociopath. They've got this American. I am coaching this guy. Because I was an international negotiation coach is what I really was. All I need to do is find somebody that's coachable. If you're coachable, I don't care what you're faced with. I can make you pretty effective because I know how the brain science works. By the way, is this stuff cross-cultural? Do you guys know every hostage negotiation team uses the same skills? The hostage negotiation team in Ch- Tokyo, De- Japan, and in Cape Town South Africa both use the same skills. Wait a minute, Japan to Africa? You've got to be kidding me, right? What's the commonality? They're human. So that's the limitation. My approach to negotiation only works where humans are involved. (laughs) So our sociopath is holding this American and there's a $10 million demand, but he's not saying it's a ransom, he's saying it's for $10 million for 500 years of oppression war damages from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans, to the atrocities committed by the Americans in the early 1900s under Black Jack Pershing, And we're not even Filipinos anyway. We're a separate, independent nation. We're Moros, and we're currently being oppressed by a puppet government in Manila that's held up by an American colonial invader. So we're not asking for ransom. We're asking for war damages for 500 years of oppression, which actually makes $10 million seem kind of small. And I realize right now, most of you are tuning this out in your mind because you're saying, like, I was never in an argument with somebody where they were bringing up stuff from the past that didn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) This didn't happen to me. All my arguments are logical and rational. Right. So we go back and forth with this guy literally for months, and finally I I say to my guy, we're going to hit the reset button here and and my my son has referred to this as the birth of the that's right moment, because I used to take this for granted. I didn't realize the extraordinary power of it. I said, the next time we get this sociopath on a phone, we're gonna get him to say that's right. And you're gonna repeat the entire situation from his perspective, especially the bad stuff about us. That might be the most critical part of it. The bad stuff about you. So my guy gets back on the phone with this terrorist, and he says, you know what, you're not asking for ransom for the American, but you're asking for war damages for 500 years of oppression. From the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans, the violations, the atrocities under blackjack pershing of the Americans in the, in the 1900s. And you're not, you're not Filipinos, you're Morals. you're a separate independent nation, been fighting for your freedom for 500 years, and you're being oppressed currently by puppet government in Manila is held up by the, by the American colonial invaders, and it's unjust and it's wrong, and he went on and on, if you're not, and he laid it on thick, and I'm here to tell you, if you're not laying it on thick, you're not laying it on thick enough, the bad stuff, not the good stuff, the bad stuff, it probably, and probably, it, it didn't seem like it would take that long, but it seemed forever that it took my guy to lay this out, and there was a moment of silence, and a sociopath on the other end of the phone said, that's right. And it was dead silence for another couple of moments. And my guy says, let's, let's talk again in a couple of days. Okay, hangs up the phone. We went from $10 million to zero in that moment. The $10 million went off the table, never to be mentioned again for the rest of the kidnapping. Last a couple more months. Kidnapping took a couple twists and turns. Finally, one day, the Americans out in the swamp we have so diffused everything they're doing, they're not even watching them anymore. They're not angry. They don't know that we've diffused them. They don't know what sort of an upper hand we have on them. They just don't know what's going on. The American, they're checking on him every three days. He's sitting out there in the swamp. He says, I'm leaving, and he walks away. <laughs> Local farmer sees him, says, you must be Jeffrey Schilling, the American. He says, I am. You know, how many black guys walking around south of the Philippines, right? Says I am they alert the military, the military flies down in helicopters, picks him up, they take him back to Manila, they hold this monumental press conference. He's got the President of the Philippines on one side, Secretary of Defense on the other. Secretary of Defense says, We have rescued the American Jeffrey Schilling in a daring military operation. <laughs> they gave him a ride.
1: <laughs>
0: it was a daring operation at the Newark Airport yesterday where I was rescued. He's sitting there, he doesn't say anything. We fly him out, back, back to the United States, and back in the Philippines about three weeks later on another kidnapping, I connect back up with my guy. He says, you're not gonna believe who called me. I don't know who called you. The terrorist, A guy named Sabaya, Sabaya called. Really? What'd he say? Have you been promoted yet? I don't know what it was that he said to me on the phone was going to kill the American. They should promote you. He hangs up. What's he saying when he made that call? terrorist sociopath called to pay his respects. Called to pay his respects to say I felt respected by you. He's also saying I'd talk to you again. If we meet again, I'd talk to you. Everybody you deal with, regardless of the outcome, should feel that solid about the interaction when it's over, no matter how the interaction went, that they'd still deal with you. Everybody you deal with. And you'd be amazed at the impact it'll have, not just on your business, but on your personal relationships. On everybody in life that matters to you. All right. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair, you get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. Boy gets kidnapped, father's not an American citizen, he knows his son is, he goes to the U.S. Embassy, says, my son's an American citizen, he's been kidnapped, you're supposed to help me. They say the FBI is going to be there to help you. Now, I don't know what went through his mind when he was told that the FBI was going to be there to help him. I can imagine it was probably something equivalent of 15 minutes later, he's going to hear on the front door, and these guys will be there. They might even have FBI hats on. So he'd know they're FBI agents. But instead, about 15 minutes later, He gets a call from some guy in Washington, D.C., named Chris Voss, and he literally says to me on the phone, you're in Washington, D.C., how are you going to help me? How much time do I have before this father hangs up the phone? You're me. What do you say? Seriously, what would you say? Going to get your son back. Logic. Lay some reality out to him. Tell me what happened. Interesting. Who thinks tell me what happened is an open-ended question? It's a command. And it's a statement. Tell me what happened. When you run into people in your businesses, what's the first thing they say to themselves, especially if they're under stress? Is it any different than what this father said to me? Do you have any less time? And what you need to establish, you know how much time you have? Does anybody know? How much time do you have before they either literally or figuratively hang up on you, before you're losing the game? How much time do you have? Seven. You got seven seconds. Tick, tick, tick. Tell me what happened. How much time does that take? Person under stress. Can they go, okay, I'm really glad you asked. You know, now that you think about it, let me go back through this. Think about it one step at a time. How did I get it, it all started when I was seven years old? I can't answer that question. I mean, who can? Under stress. Seven seconds. And what do you have to establish? What you have to establish is the same thing I had to establish. What what is it? Trust, absolutely. Trust and competence. Exactly right. You get two things trust and competence. Not confidence, competence. And you get seven seconds. What do you say?
1: Trust me, I'm confident. (laughs)
0: If that worked, would you need videos to market your practice? Probably not. Trust me, I'm from the FBI, and I'm here to help you. How do I know how to do this? Because I did it wrong in the past. The first time I was in the Philippines on a case, and I'm going to touch on it before we get done here this morning, he walked me into a room that the, the heads of the government are all there from the Philippines. I'm there at the express personal invitation of the American ambassador. The head of the FBI in Manila has gone to the ambassador and given him my name and said, we need this guy, and we have to officially invite him to come and help, and we need to walk him into this room where everybody except the president of the Philippines is going to be. The secretary of defense is going to be there. The head of the police is going to be there. Police in the Philippines is the national police force, so the head of the police is the equivalent of a cabinet level position. And at the time, the president's two closest personal advisors were the secretary of defense and the head of the police. The only reason the President of the Philippines wasn't in the room is because then his personal confidential advisor was. And in and substance, they said to me, how are you going to help us? And I took this as the opportunity to lay out my resume. FBI agent, so many years. Joint terrorist task force, New York City, winner the Attorney General's award, winner of the FBI Agents Association Award for Distinguished and Exemplary Service. Not only teach from the book at Quantico now, I've, I wrote the book we teach from. Not only trained by the FBI, but trained by Scotland Yard as well. Laid out my extensive credentials, and I can tell you they were suitably unimpressed. They may as well have yawned in my face. Why is that? You guys know why. If your credentials showed that you knew what you were doing, You would never hire the wrong person in your firm, and you would never fail, would you? Your credentials correlate loosely with whether or not you know what you're doing. Loosely. What did I say to this father? Simple. Here's what I said. All right, Haitian kidnappers are not killing each kidnap victims these days. I realize that's really stupid because they kill each other at the drop of a hat, but they're not killing kidnap victims. Now Today is Thursday, and Haitian kidnappers love the party on Saturday night. If you say the things I want you to say, when I want you to say them, we're going to have your son out late Friday or early Saturday morning. He said, tell me what you want me to do. We had a son out Saturday morning. So let's break down a little bit of what I did do, and also, more importantly, what I didn't do. By the way, through the course of the kidnapping, the father never asked me how many kidnappings I'd worked. He never asked me how long I'd been an FBI agent. He never asked me how long I'd been a hostage negotiator. He never asked me if I spoke French or Creole, the languages. He never asked me how many times i had been to Haiti. You guys may have asked yourself, this guy's a lead international kidnapping negotiator. He's negotiated all over the world. How many languages does this guy speak? By now, the answer to that is abundantly clear, barely one. <laughs> how many times I've been to Haiti? You guys know how many times I've been to Haiti? No, I've never been to Haiti. Never asked me that. None of those typical competence indicators ever came up. As soon as I told him what he was looking at, here's what you're looking at. And then I offered him the slightest bit of insight into how to navigate that. And he said, tell me what you want me to do. I will also ask you to compare how long it took me to say that with how long it took me to lay out my resume, which was shorter. Most communication hacks, most ways to shortcut the, the actual process and make it last less time seem really indirect and save time. It seems like you're going in another direction and it ends up shortcutting the process significantly. What business you in? I think you guys are in the trust business. What business was a hostage negotiator in? I was in the trust business. But take the word trust out, and drop in the word predictability. And then things begin to change. Because as soon as you begin to make things more predictable and understandable. Now you begin to help them in huge ways. Your clients, buyers and sellers, match almost exactly the psychological profile and reactions of the family members of a kidnapped hostage. Somebody's family member gets kidnapped, their child gets kidnapped, and their hopes and dreams for the future have been taken hostage, have been hijacked. When your home is for sale, Or you're trying to buy a home these are hopes and dreams for the future very same profile you can google the most stressful events in people's lives and buying or selling a home especially selling a home is very high on that hit parade and the other interesting thing about this is the very same as a kidnapping is when a kidnapping starts the family doesn't know when it's going to be over even though i know i can guess within If I know the profile of the case and I know the country that it's in, I can guess within either a week or a month as to how long it's going to take. I know, but they don't know. They haven't been through this before. One of the definitions of traumatic stress is that it's unrelenting. They don't know when it will be over. Your clients, your buyers and sellers, they don't know when this is going to go away. They don't know when it's going to be over. And that is overwhelming for people. That's why they call it traumatic stress. In the kidnapping business, we found out that the families of kidnapped victims suffered traumatic stress at the same rates as the victims because they didn't know when it was going to be over. So that being said, what are some little things that you can do to make it easier? When, with these guidelines that I'm going to share with you, and I heard some of them talked about yesterday, word for word by some of your top professionals in the room, we didn't have one single family go off track, go in the wrong direction, not follow our guidance when we followed some of these simple things. One of the things that I told that father when I spoke to him on the phone, since he doesn't know how long the kidnapping is going to last for sure, even though I've already given him a time frame, and I know as soon as I hang up the phone with him that the fear is going to come rushing back in. If he doesn't know the next time I'm going to call him, it's overwhelming. But I tell him, I'm going to call you back in an hour. Every time that I spoke to him on the phone, I said, you'll have me back on a phone in an hour. The father, if he doesn't know how many days it's going to be, he's going to be scared to death. But if he knows he's only going to last for an hour, he can hang in there for an hour. I heard Supermom yesterday talking about calling her clients three times a week, no matter what, that's phenomenal advice. Because if you've got a client that doesn't know when it's going to go through, they're sitting there waiting for the phone to ring, not knowing when it's going to ring. The unknown is a huge stressor. Here's how bad of a stressor the unknown is. Before I became a hostage negotiator, I was a member of FBI SWAT, and I tried out for the Bureau's version of the Navy SEALs, and the FBI has something called the hostage rescue team. And when I tried out for them, their maximum psychological stressor for us to try to get us to break was simply the unknown. They'd take us for a run, and we'd want to know how far we were going to go, so we'd know how fast to run. If I know I'm going to run for an hour, if I'm going to run for five miles, I know how fast to run." And they'd take us for a run, and they'd just say, "Start running. We're done when we're done. Now every single time they took us for a run, it was for about 45 minutes. But they take you out on a run. And if you know, you're going to go 45 minutes, I can run seven minute miles. If you run a lot, you know exactly how fast you run. You can pace yourself. If you don't know it's supposed to stress out, especially if they're trying to run you into the ground, the unknown. If that's the maximum stressor for special forces around the planet, imagine what the unknown as a stressor for your clients is. And imagine how far you can go instantly. If they know they're going to hear from you three times a week. No matter what you have just now stepped up your game in terms of being in the trust business because you're adding predictability to it they trust you more they give you more latitude the other thing i love that i heard the supermom said yesterday too which we did and i had to learn this the hard way when we're in the midst of a kidnapping that we know is going to last months weeks and many of them did some of them last years I would coach all of my negotiators, if you got nothing to tell the family, call them up and tell them you got nothing. Bring them on the phone. They know they're going to hear from you every couple days. Call them on the phone and say, look, I just want you to know there's nothing new. And the families would love that. I learned that the hard way because there was a Department of State Citizen Services guy who was doing far better with the families than we were on the international kidnappings. And I, I finally said, you know, they love you. What are you doing? He I call them every couple of days, and if I got nothing new, I tell them I got nothing new. They love it. Because it adds predictability and stability, and they can now they can cope with the uncertainty. Supermom yesterday said, you know what, if I got if I got no showings, if I got, nobody's come in to see the house, I call them and I and I say, look, nobody's been in to see the house. And your gut instinct is gonna be, oh, that's gonna make me look stupid. It's gonna make me look like I'm not doing anything. That is not what it does it makes you look like you're watching out for them it helps and in a way that they don't even understand you're now helping to mitigate that stress for them now the other thing this is also which was i really wanted you to get the distinction in this this is not calling them on the phone and saying how you doing how you doing it's not calling on the phone saying how are you and i can remember one time one of my negotiators in the cincinnati division we had a sister in the cincinnati area and I heard about this, this young lady, this woman, the entire time, because everybody was scared of her. When, when I finally met her in person, I was blown away, because she was this buoyant, positive, upbeat, kind of like young pixie woman. And I was like, this, this is a girl that everybody's scared of? Because she, she, she didn't take nonsense. She was a no-nonsense kind of person. So my negotiator says, you know, I'm, call, I'm tired of calling her on the phone and asking her how she's doing and having her bite my head off. And I I said to him, are are you kidding me? How do you not know how she's doing? Her sister's being held hostage by terrorists. How are you doing? It's a silly question. I told you to call her and tell her you got nothing new. It'll take you three seconds, but he felt that made him look stupid. He's supposed to be the FBI, supposed to have all the answers. You know, we got computers, we got satellites. I can't call him and tell him there's nothing new. Believe me. The distance that that will go to help people relax while their child, their home, their hopes and dreams for the future is on the line in your hands. Touch base with them regularly and just give them simple updates and you'll be amazed at how far it will go. And don't don't start by saying how you doing.
1: Summary is just periodically covering the main points his story, his feelings in your words. When do you use the summary? At the beginning of the conversation and at the end, I recommend you starting off your conversation with a summary of what brought you to the table, what brought you to the phone, why are we having this conversation? What's your understanding of the circumstances that led up to this discussion? Depending on the circumstances, depending on the relationship, it could be a a very long summary, it could be a short summary. So at the beginning, before your accusations are just drop that summary in. At the conclusion, whether or not you've made or come to a resolution or not, you want to sum up the conversation as best as you would call it. Both of those times or any time um, you're using a summary. It should be, it should be concluded with. What have I missed? Give them an opportunity to correct you. Give them an opportunity to fill in something that you may have missed because if they bring it up, you know that it's of uber importance to them. And it's another demonstration of your willingness to defer. What have I missed? Before you draw your line in the sand, before you get assertive with the people that you're dealing with, hit them with a summary. When you need to have a point clarified, hit them with the summary. Before you make a counteroffer, summarize the conversation to that point. If and going back to clarification. Especially valuable if you're talking for an extended period. It is wholly appropriate for you to to stop the conversation and say, hey, we've been at this for about 45 minutes now. Are you against me summarizing what we've talked about to this point? Wholly appropriate for you to put the brakes on the conversation at that point. How do you get to that level that you're able to summarize their thoughts and feelings so well? that they immediately lock in with you by simply listening. you heard me say it before, the cheapest and most effective concession that you can make to another person is to listen. It is the most powerful. It is the most underutilized tool in your toolbox. Forget the black swan method for a second. Listening by itself increases your ability to influence other people.
0: Jack Welch, author of Jack and Winning, alongside his, with his wife, Susie. They're coming through uh, Los Angeles a couple of years ago. They're, they're, they're hustling their book, The Real Life MBA. I go to the book signing Jack Welch is at. I want him to come speak to the negotiation course I'm teaching at the time at USC. How many people try to get Jack Welch to say yes to something at that book signing? Pretty much every one of them, right? They're going to come up there, Jack, how are you? Yeah, my kid makes, my wife makes a great meatloaf. You want to come to the house tonight? God knows what they're going to ask him. Jack, I got this invention, would you pose with it? How many people are going to ask him to try to say yes? That day, that week, how many people try to get Jack Welch to say yes to something? You're me, you come up to Jack Welch, what do you say? And how much time do you have? You maybe got seven seconds. And even if you get to the second response after him, there's 300 people standing behind you in line. They walk you up there. Before you get to them, they say, what's your name? Chris, right on a piece of paper so Jack doesn't get it wrong. Really, that's so you don't, so you don't talk to him. And then you keep moving. On top of that. Have they patted me down? Do they know whether or not I've got a gun? Have I been through a metal detector? As a matter of fact, I do have a gun, but he's not in trouble for me. They don't have my identification. They don't know I'm not going to hurt him. I'm going to get within arm's length of Jack Welch. Action is quicker than reaction. They can't stop me from doing anything I want to do. This is, this is the dilemma of bodyguards. You get within arm's length of the target, you can only stop them after they've done it. You can grab them after they've killed your target. But you can't stop him. I'm, I'm gonna get within arm's length of Jack Welch. They, I could do whatever I want. I could walk up to him. I could kiss him right on the lips if I want to. Right? <laughs> he was falling asleep. I want to make sure he wake up. <laughs> he's, he's gonna wake up screaming in the middle of the night. Ah! <laughs> I walk up to Jack Welch, and this is what I say to him. Is it a ridiculous idea for you to come and speak at the negotiation course that I teach at USC. He looks up and to the left he gets this really intense scowl on his face. And he just freezes. And I think to myself, I just killed Jack Welch. (laughs) He had a stroke, he's so furious, and he's gonna die, and the security's gonna tackle me, and he's gonna drag me on cuffs. I'm gonna say, but I'm an FBI agent. We don't care, he killed Jack Welch. So initially, when he doesn't die, I'm relieved, but he still doesn't move. finally, he unfreezes, and he looks at me, and he says, this is my personal assistant's name. This is a special Twitter account we have set up to co- communicate with her. I will call her and tell her who you are and what you want. I think we're going to be in Los Angeles in the fall. If we are, we'll come in and speak at your class. Calibrated no is worth at least five yeses.
2: What is tactical empathy? So tactical empathy is applying emotional intelligence in a very calibrated way. That's why we say tactical empathy. If you think about the word tactical, it essentially means that you're aiming at something uh, beyond the immediate action, okay? So beyond the label that you're using, beyond the mirror that you're using, you're aiming for um tactical empathy in the long run which is going to help you achieve that trust-based influence so when you're talking about what it is about tactical empathy that that makes it important it's essentially recognizing the perspective of the person across the table from you and actually vocalizing that perspective so it's not enough just to recognize what the other side is seeing it is important for you to actually vocalize it because you're not demonstrating the actual empathy until after you vocalized it. So if you think about a lot of people say, um, your gut instinct, um, or some people talk about, you know, that little voice in the back of your head, or when you're walking down the street and you feel the little hairs on the back of your neck kind of go up a little bit. If you pay attention to those things, those are where you're going to reach your intuition. Okay. Um, you have to learn how to trust your gut in otherwise, to, in other words, to use this stuff, you use these skills. You have to have a little bit of trust in yourself to kind of allow yourself to recognize what's going on with the other side. You can't be afraid of it. Now, the reason trusting your influence, your intuition is why can I not talk today? Let me take another sip of coffee real quick. Let's see what we got going on here. Hmm. My words are just trying not to come out. Right. The reason it is so important to learn how to trust your intuition is because your conscious mind processes 40 bits of information per second. Your unconscious mind processes 20 million bits of information per second. So there's a big disparity in that number. 40 bits of information, not really that much. When you're talking about how many things your unconscious mind is picking up each second, you get a lot of information. If you learn how to trust that. Okay. All right. So a lot of people say, well, what's the difference? Isn't empathy the same as sympathy? No, they're not the same. Okay. Sympathy is when you're feeling what the other side is feeling. That's not what we're doing with empathy. Empathy is basically seeing the world through their eyes and then understanding it so well that you could summarize it for them. So I want you to remember as we go through here, it's not about being nice. It doesn't mean you agree with that other person and it doesn't mean that you necessarily even like them. Because if you think about the world that Troy and Barbara and I come from, we didn't like the people that we were dealing with okay they were usually bad people so there was no there was no love there with those people so it's not that you have to feel any kind of positive way toward the person that you're dealing with you just have to be able to demonstrate an understanding of what's going on in their mind and then be able to kind of vocalize it and summarize it for them Subscribe to the Black Swan Group's negotiation newsletter, which is free.
0: It doesn't cost you anything. I had a colleague with the FBI that used to like to say, if it's free, I'll take three. Here's how you subscribe to The Edge if you're in the United States. Send a text to the number is 33777. That's 33777. The text message that you send is Black Swan Method, Black Swan Method 233777. Comes to your email inbox on Tuesday mornings when you're ready to rock and roll and get after the week.